All right. So we're getting close to the end of Exodus. I mean, relatively speaking, uh, there's still quite a bit of Exodus left. And just to give you a heads up, if you read through the rest of the book of Exodus, like the last four chapters is going to be an exact um, replication of what we read in God telling Moses what to do uh, for the tabernacle. Make, make these pieces of furniture this way, and then the last four chapters of Exodus, and Moses made the furniture that way, and he did it. So we may, we may breeze through those last four chapters, but we've still got several chapters before we get there. So we're in Exodus 30 tonight. Where did we leave off? Like, what's happening in Exodus? We're only a week out from when we last talked about Exodus, so it ought to be more memorable than it was last time when we were four or five weeks out. Clothes and blood. Okay. All right. We, we talked about the priest's garments um, a month ago. A month ago. What did we talk about last week? Sacrifice in terms of what? Why were we sacrificing? Like, I mean, we weren't sacrificing, but... Right. We were talking about the ordination ceremony that God told Moses. This is how you will ordain and consecrate the priests to go about their work and to go about their duty. And we walked through the, the different sacrifices. There were three different sacrifices and then, well, I guess four different sacrifices if you count the wave offering and all that kind of stuff. And, and several different ways that this ordination process happened. And we looked at that. We took that apart and kind of showed how that pointed to Christ and how it pointed to the ultimate salvation God would bring, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate priest, the ultimate anointing, the ultimate, you know, we, we talked about all of those things. So where is Moses right now hearing all this? He's on the mountain with God. God is instructing Moses. He instructed him on all the furniture in the tabernacle so far, how to build the tabernacle, the garments of the priest, how they're going to be ordained for their service. And then in chapter 30, he is going to, we got one more chapter, 31, uh, where we talk about more stuff like this. And then 32, it, it gets back to narrative where we talk about what Aaron does and the golden calf and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in chapter 30, he begins to describe um, how the priests are to go about their duties. And I know this is sometimes reading through these sections, this part of Exodus and Leviticus and several parts of Numbers, it gets a little laborious with the details and you feel like, okay, all right, I got it, you know. But this is, it's, it's applicable to uh, the believer's life today. Um, and, it, and it's important as well. So he's talking about the, how the priests go about their duties. And the first thing that we see in Exodus 30, I'm going to read the first five verses. It, it involves another piece of furniture that we haven't been shown yet. And that furniture is called the golden altar of incense. So it says in verses 1 through 5, You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. So it's got horns on it just like the other altar. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. I'm squeaking. And you shall make a molding of gold around it, and you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles which will carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Okay, so now in the, the context of what we have looked at over and over and over again with this, it's basically just how to build another piece of furniture. It's this altar of incense. Um, hold on, let me fix something real quick. Hello. 
Hey, how's it going? Okay, good. I forgot to do this. People at home are getting mad. They're not really getting mad, but they're not seeing it the way they should be seeing it. Okay, there we go. All right. So, this is an altar just like every other piece of furniture. It's about, I don't know, a foot and a half, foot and a half square, and it's about three feet high. So, that's basic, you know, cubits between 18, 22 inches, somewhere around there. We talked about that before. And just like all the other furniture in the tabernacle, inside the tabernacle, it's made, it's overlaid with what? Gold. Gold. I'm going to turn this down just a little more. Susan, you want to be in charge of the <laughs> I was just agreeing. Okay. Alright, so it's overlaid with gold. And it looked, it looked, based on this description, it looked just like the bronze altar that was out in the courtyard. Just smaller and golden. It had horns on the four corners, just like the bronze altar, it had rings on the side for poles to carry it just like the bronze altar. But this altar wasn't out in the courtyard. It was placed right in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy. You read that in verse 6. He says this, And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat. What's the mercy seat? Top of the ark. Yeah, the top of the ark of the covenant where God's presence dwelt. Mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. So this altar of incense, this golden altar of incense, was right in the middle of the tabernacle between the table of showbread and the golden lampstand, and it sat right up against the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the actual presence of God would dwell uh, and speak to Moses. So its placement is right in front of where the ark sat behind the veil. So it's right there in front of the veil, right in front of God's presence, as it were, it, when God would dwell on the, on the mercy seat. It was right where atonement was made. So when the priest would come in and stand at the altar of incense, and we're going to talk about what he did there in just a second, he was standing right before God. The only thing separating him from the presence of God, the veil, right? Y'all with me? Everybody with me? So this altar of incense was as close as the priest would ever get to God's presence, except for one time a year, the high priest would actually go behind the veil to offer sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Um, what do you think it felt like to be a priest ministering right up next to the veil of God's presence, knowing if you cross this boundary, you die? Yeah, it had to have been pretty intimidating. So let's talk, about, um, let's talk about the purpose of this altar, and then we'll talk about how it applies to us today. He says, And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses, the lamps, uh, he shall burn it, uh, meaning the, the lampstand. When he tends to the lights, he shall burn incense. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering. And you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. So just as the name suggests, the incense, incense was to be burned on this altar of incense. 
daily. It was to be offered every evening, every morning, at the same time that the morning and evening sacrifice was going on out in the courtyard and Aaron was tending to the lamps, the lights inside, uh, either you know doing his high priestly duties. So at the same time the morning and evening sacrifice was happening in the courtyard, he was offering incense on the altar of incense inside the tabernacle. And God was particularly clear to Moses that this altar, this altar here of incense, was never to be used for anything else. There was no burnt offerings allowed on it. There were no grain offerings, no animal offerings, no drink offerings. No other kind of offering of any kind was allowed on this golden altar of incense. In fact, there was only a special blend of spices of incense that was allowed to be used here. And the recipe for that is at the end of this chapter. So the real question for us as we walk through these verses is really... What does this have to do with us? Like, what, what, should we be burning incense every day? I mean, is that what God is telling us? No. What do you think the altar, and there's several opinions. I'm going to give you mine, so it's only fair that you give me yours as well. Uh, what do you think the incense is picturing or symbolizing, as it were? Prayer. Prayer. Why do you say that? Who said that? <laughs> Travis, look at you go. <laughs> Susan, did you whisper prayer to him? No. Okay. So that's what I think it is. That's what I think it is. So there are several different theories as to why, all ranging from covering the smell of all the blood to symbolizing the presence of God. And But I think that when we, when we read Scripture, we first, before we bring things from outside, we allow Scripture to interpret itself. And I think, um, in my opinion, the Bible itself presents the incense on the altar as il illustrating the prayers of the priest as he offers the incense. Now, let me show you how I come to that conclusion. I just didn't just pull that out of thin air, and I didn't just say that because other people have said that in the past. So in Psalm 142, 1 and 2, David cries for help, and he asks God to receive his prayer as the evening sacrifice and as incense goes up at the evening sacrifice. He says, O oh Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So in this psalm, David's crying out for for help he asked God to receive his prayer as uh, as incense and his hands raised calling for help as the evening sacrifice he's referring to the daily ritual in the tabernacle that the priest went through he's saying let my prayer go up front before you just as this ceremony was going on the incense at the altar the sacrifice that took place in the evening the incense was offered already said at the same time as the daily sacrifice so the psalms apply the incense to the prayers lifted up to god it's not the only place that this is found in luke chapter one who is john the baptist's dad's name you know what Zechariah, look at y'all, man. Y'all are doing good. In Luke chapter 1, before John is born, Zechariah goes into, he's a priest, he goes into the temple, not the tabernacle, but the temple, to burn incense. It says, now while he was serving Zechariah as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Do you see what the hour of incense meant? 
It means we gather and we pray. There was a time of prayer. So this offering of incense happened every day, morning and evening. And here as Zechariah went in to make the offering of incense on the golden altar of incense, um, at the same time there were people meeting out in the, in the courtyard, praying in the courtyard. It was a time of prayer, it says. And we know that Zechariah himself, as he was offering the incense in the temple in Luke 1, he was praying because in verse 13 of Luke 1, the angel appeared, remember, and he said, Zechariah, don't be afraid, your prayer has been heard. Your wife will conceive, she will give birth to John the Baptist. And then twice in the book of Revelation, we're told that the incense is the prayers of the saints. One in chapter 5, verse 8 says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And it says it again in chapter 8. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censure, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints in the golden altar before the throne. The golden altar before the throne. You see it? The mercy seat, golden altar is right in front of the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So that's what I think, you're right, that's what I think this points to, this altar of incense. It points to the incense burnt in the tabernacle during the morning and evening sacrifice is a picture of the intercessory prayer made by the high priest daily in conjunction with the daily sacrifice. Anybody want to push back on that? Did I make sense? Yes. Did Aaron ever get a day off? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. She asked if Aaron ever got a day off. I would imagine not, not at the beginning for sure. Uh, at at some point, uh, God's gonna I uh, say God's gonna Aaron's gonna die, and they're gonna take off his robes and put on the robes on his son, and then his son will take over the high priesthood. But it's interesting, and I don't know when this happened. But God's instructions to Moses were that the high priest is going to tend the lamp, is going to burn the incense while the evening morning sacrifice is going out. But in Luke 1, you see it's not the high priest, it's Zechariah who's just a priest. So I don't know when that changed or how that changed. Maybe somebody else does. Maybe it's written somewhere and I just don't know. But uh, there, is, there is movement there from just the high priest doing it to you know, thousands of years later, uh, just a priest doing it. Any other questions, comments? So if it's the intercessory prayer of the priest, hold that thought. Okay, we're going to come back to it in just a minute. So the next thing that he says in Exodus 30 is that this altar, this altar of incense, before it can be used, before it can anything be burnt on it. Remember, Moses, God is telling Moses to build these things and how to do these things. None of this has happened yet. Before it can happen, it needs to be made holy. Just like every other piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Verse 10 said, Aaron shall make atonement on his horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So not only would it be made holy before they began, but every year on the day of atonement, Aaron would consecrate this altar. And it had to be consecrated with blood. You see it in the text? Once a year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, Offering was made for all of the nation, God's people on the bronze altar out in the courtyard. And you know what happened. The high priest would take the, the blood of the atonement, blood of the sacrifice, and 
there were some other rituals that went on too, some other things, putting their hands, put, sending one of the scapegoat out into the wilderness. But they, ultimately, they bring the blood into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, uh, and some of that blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat was also put on the altar of incense to set it apart as holy. So once a year, it was consecrated. Why did the altar of incense, which we said... Uh, pictured the prayers of the priests, the prayers of the saints, if you will. We're going to get there in a second. Why did it need to be consecrated? Sure, that's a simple answer. I'm not trying to trick you because God's holy. Because he's holy. Now, if you want to know just how important it is that everything on this altar, everything in this tabernacle is holy, you can just ask Nadab and Abihu. You know those two guys? Yeah. Know the story? What happened? They offered strange incense. That's right. They offered what the, what the strange fire. They burned the wrong kind of incense. There's, some, there's a couple of other theories about what they did or didn't do. But ultimately, they offered the wrong thing at the altar, the golden altar of incense. And what happened to them? I know they died, but how did they die? Yeah, it says fire came out from the altar and burned them up. And that's in Leviticus 10, if you want to read that story. What gets me most about that story is basically the reaction after. Now, the, this is Aaron's two sons that just got burned up. And Moses basically comes up and said, don't cry for them. You better suck it up. Do, do your job. I mean, he didn't use those words, but basically he said, you better just come on. You better come on and do your job. Uh, so so they, it's important that it was holy. So what I want you to see from these first 10 verses is that there's a connection between the two altars. Between one where sacrifice is offered in the courtyard, blood and bulls and goats and all of those rams that we saw last week in Exodus 29, and the golden altar of incense inside the tabernacle, which... Um, where prayers, the incense, is offered, lifted up before God. The connection between the two altars is that this altar of sacrifice cleanses this altar of prayer, if you want to say it that way, this altar of incense, so that uh, it is made holy. And it shows us, it shows us two things. First, it's, it's, it's just this picture of the gospel. So the duty was given only to the priest. It's your job to go in before the veil to pray, to intercede, to burn incense on this altar. Only you could enter into the tabernacle. Nobody else, Israel never saw inside the tabernacle, ever. Only the priests saw inside the tabernacle. So you go in, you pray, you burn incense at the altar at the appointed times in the morning and evening sacrifice. Everybody else in the nation will not be in there. They will be praying, in a sense, through you. You will be interceding for all of them. And which points us to who? Jesus. Jesus, our high priest who intercedes for us continually right now today. Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to intercede for his people. Um, Milton Dayan put this quote, got this quote. I put it up on the screen for you so you can read it. It was just pretty impactful for me. It said, 
At the brazen altar, the bronze altar out there where sacrifice made, Christ died for us, shed his blood, reconciled us to God, and made us forever secure in him. But at the golden altar, he lives in heaven to intercede for for those for whom he has already died and who are already saved. The brazen altar speaks of the death of Christ. The golden altar speaks of the living, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. The two altars, therefore, speak of the death and the resurrection and constitute the full message of the gospel. You see? It? The altar of sacrifice, the altar of incense. Jesus died for our sins, paid the penalty for our sin, sacrificed himself for our sin, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and now intercedes for us with, with his blood. So that our prayers now go straight to God through the high priest who is seated at his right hand. So you don't no longer do we who are indwelled with the Spirit, no longer do we pray through another person. We pray, as it were, through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and our prayers go directly before the throne of God. So this also, this altar, it it served as um, a daily reminder that the life of prayer, even today, your life of prayer depends on a sacrifice for your sin. So what this illustrates to us is it's by the sacrifice of Christ and his blood and his priestly intercession, his going in behind the veil for us. It's by that that even our prayers are acceptable before God. You hear me? Yeah. Agree with me? Anybody want to push back on that? I agree. Okay. <laughs> the basis for access to God in prayer. Remember, nobody in Israel came up before to this veil. Nobody. Nobody walked into the front door of the tabernacle other than the priests. But the basis for our unfettered access to God's throne, boldly before the throne of grace, we're told to go in, is the blood of Jesus Christ that has made atonement, split the veil, and allowed us to go in by grace through faith in Jesus Christ so that our prayers need no other mediator than Jesus Christ. You can pray... You can pray right now and your, your prayers go to the throne room of God. And, and I want to tell you, even we're, we're still fallen, we're still fallible. This doesn't have anything to do with Exodus 30. This is just a little applicable nugget for you. Um, even when we pray and our prayers are not, let's just say they're not God's will. You know, you pray for a loved one that, that, that is, you know... Um, You want to be healed, and it's not. Or you pray for whatever. Uh, When we pray, Jesus cleanses our prayers. It's it's as as if our prayers go through Jesus, and the blood of Christ cleanses them, and they come before God as just this fragrant incense offering of God. So uh, when you pray sometimes and you don't receive uh, the exact outcome you want, we don't take that to mean, well, God's angry with you. If you're in Christ, he's not angry with you. We don't take that to mean, well, God's not listening to you. No, we take that to mean if we're in the gospel, we have Jesus Christ, our prayers are a fragrant incense to God. We just might not understand God's plan right now. We might not understand his perfect will that we you know, don't have the big picture of. So when we say that we're in Christ and we believe in the gospel and there's nothing else, no other work that I need to do in order to be right with God, that includes unfettered access to the throne of God. So many times people will get you know, hurt or bitter or whatever when, when their prayer is not exactly answered in the exact right way they think it should be. Uh, but God is good. He never leaves or forsakes his children. And if the gospel's true, and it is, 
There's nothing else that we need to know that we have perfect access to God to go boldly before his throne of grace. Amen. Questions, comments? And this explains why we pray. How do we pray? What, what, how do you end your prayer? In Jesus. In Jesus' name. Yeah. That's not just the right way to end your prayer. I mean, it is the right way to end your prayer, but that's not just a saying tacked on to the end of That's the basis of our prayer. Jesus has atoned for our sins, so we're telling God, God, it's in His name that I'm coming to you. It's in His name that I'm bringing supplication to you. It's in His name that I'm, I, I'm, I'm claiming access to come before your throne with this request, with this whatever it is, with this praise, with this prayer. It's by His death on the cross, His resurrection, by His righteous life that we have access to God. So when we say in Jesus' name, we're saying by His authority, by His identity, by who He is, we are claiming the right that He has purchased for us to come into your presence and to bring these prayers of, of supplication. And we can have perfect assurance in the gospel, in Christ, that we know that our prayers are heard. That our prayers are heard and they're received before God. So we come on the basis of his name. Our prayers are received as incense, pleasing to the Lord, because our sacrifice, our priest, is interceding for us. Y'all with me? Altar of incense. Anybody want to say anything about it before we move on? Now that is, a, I was excited about bringing you and showing you the altar of incense. The rest of the sub, not so much. Because <laughs> it gets a little tough right here. So the rest of this chapter, there are going to be some difficult things for us to kind of understand. Uh, there's a census tax. Yay! Um, there's directions for making the anointing oil and the incense. It's very detailed and, and you may wonder why it's here. Well, one thing for sure it shows us is that there was nothing casual, nothing whimsical about God's worship in Israel. He told them every element was instructed by God, commanded by God, and must be done just as he says. So as we look at this census text, I want to tell you right off the bat, there are, if you, if you look at five different Bible scholars, you will get six different opinions about what this means. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the best that I have for you, and then push back, you know, I'm not dogmatic about my position on this, so uh, I will take correction if there is any to be had. He says in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the people in Israel, then each, each, each person shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among you when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel is a unit of weight, not just a coin, but a unit of weight. It's probably silver. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than, half, than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. Now that's strange, isn't it? So a ransom is what he calls it. A ransom must be paid by everyone who is counted whenever you take a census, he's telling Moses. So taking a census was a huge risk in Israel. He said, if you don't do it the way I tell you, a plague's going to come and kill you guys. So it's a matter of life and death. God threatened a plague if this payment wasn't made. So why? 
And as soon as we get done here, he's going to go and talk about the, the bronze laver, the wash basin that was out in the court. And why put it right here between the altar of incense and the wash basin? I was hoping you'd answer because I don't know. <laughs> so there's a lot of different opinions. I'm just going to tell you where I land because literally there are, there's 10 different theories I could tell you. Um, this is where I land. and You tell me what you think. So the census was counting only males 20 and up. So it wasn't counting all the kids, wasn't counting everybody there. So the thought is that what's being referred to here is counting of fighting men, you know, the, the military divisions, the army that was going to, uh, they were going to fight with as they go into the land of Canaan. Uh, and the temptation is, and I'm going to show you how I got here in a second, the temptation was to see a huge army, all the men that are 20 and up, able to fight, to see this huge army as power in just the leader's hand or power in the nation itself. We are a mighty nation because we have this great big army. And that would be to forget that these people belonged to God. It was to rob God of his glory and by, um, by taking pride in the size of their fighting men. Now, I know that's a stretch from this text, but... What God required that is whenever a census, think about this, whenever Moses, you want to take a census, you want to see how many fighting men you have. Whenever you do that, they have to pay. They have to pay a shekel. So every guy that's counted and counted from one side to the next, they have to pay a unit, a shekel, a unit of silver uh, so you can count them. So each person has to pay a measure of silver. He even called it atonement money. He says, you're going to make atonement for your lives by paying this amount of silver. So the money didn't remove sin. Uh, we saw how sin is removed in the sacrifice, but it's a ransom for their life. It rescued them from the judgment of this plague. And so it reminded them, each person, as they come across and they paid their money and they were counted in this census that they belonged to God. Now, the reason why I say it that way, because the reason why I fall where I fall about what this means is because there's a famous example of this happening in Scripture. You know where it is? Yeah, yeah. David. yeah it's David in 2 Samuel. Mm -hmm. Tell me what happened. It was a sin for the counter. So... David decides to count his fighting men in 2 Samuel. And if you remember the story, his top general, his name was Joab, objected and said, David, don't do this. In 2 Samuel 24, 3, it says, Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as we have, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed and Joab against Joab and the commanders of the army. So David went ahead and did it anyway. But if you read through 2 Samuel, Samuel, David has the army counted, but what doesn't he do? He doesn't require them to pay the silver. Doesn't require them to pay the shekel. And that, I think, is why God came and said, all right, David, now you messed up. And he gives David three options about the punishment, and which one does David choose? Yes, he does. He said, he says, I'll give you what are the three? They say one is a plague, one or pestilence, one is by the sword, and one is famine. I don't know if that's I check that. I don't know if that's right or not. But David basically said, I'd rather be in your hand than in some other person's hand, and a plague is sent. It killed seventy thousand people. 
So the reason I land where I land is because it seems like to me, which I will take correction if we want to discuss it, it seems like to me that this, what he's warning about, actually happened in the life of Israel when David took a census, didn't collect the offering, and the exact judgment God said would happen happens, albeit because David chose it, but that's the one that happens. So do you see that application? And am I just, am I pulling too far out of context or making too big of a leap? No, yeah. Do these, I mean, was there a scheduled time to do this or just if you decided? So I, I thought about that. I don't think there is a scheduled time. He says, when you take an offering, and I hadn't looked at the Hebrew to see if it's, you know, a temporal, like when you do it, because it sounds like in English, it sounds like, it's obvious you're going to. So when you do this, um, I don't know if God is just making concession. Like, I know you guys are going to do this, but to deter you from doing it, I'm going to make everybody you count pay money. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. What's the difference? What's the, what's the time deal between when Moses did it and when David did it? Does that, um, did it stay? Did that rule stay stick all the way through? Did the rule stick? Say that again? Yes. Did the rule stay what Moses did, what, what he had done, did it applicable to David? I think so, yes. He, I think so. Uh, he asked if the rule was still applicable to David in David's time. I think so, and I think the evidence of it is the actual judgment that happened. Um, granted, that there are some that say that this don't have, one doesn't have anything to do with the other. Uh, I find that hard to, hard to swallow just because it's so similar and it's so exactly what God warned Moses about. Uh, but like I said, this, this census tax, I mean, I spent, I spent the majority of my week trying to learn what this census tax was about. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't come up with much. That's all I got. Any other questions before we move on? Okay. All right. In verse 16 of Exodus, we're shown the reason why this tax is commanded, what God says about this tax. He says, um, oh, that's the pestilence, sorry. He says, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So he repeats what he said about atonement for your lives. But there's a couple of things, a couple of things that he says this tax, this census money will do. Number one, it was for the service of the tabernacle. This money belonged to God. It is to be used for his house. Now, there are some that think it was for the operating of his house, the operating, and it very well could be. We don't really know. Um, but it could be that, and in fact, I think it was for, no, I, I don't know. There are some people who say that it was silver to be used for the silver that were in the bases of all the the planks, you know, we looked at that when we talked about the thing. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know that it's a fact, but it makes sense because he says that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance. And that's why it just it just makes sense to me. I don't know if it's a fact or not, because every time they see these bases on the outside of the of the tabernacle with their silver, they're going to remember that was the the money the ransom for their lives when they saw them. Uh, they would remember their place of worship. God's own dwelling rested on the price that was paid for their redemption. I don't know if that's so. Uh, 
um, but he said that this, this money, this would be taken for the census tax was number one, to operate the temple, to be given to the temple, uh, the tabernacle, and number two, as a remembrance for all of Israel. Uh, it could just be that it was the remembrance of, hey, this is God's people. He owns this people. He protects this people. And when you count for your army, uh, don't take pride in the army for it is God who, who uh, oversees us, I guess. Yeah, okay, I don't know. Whatever. Any questions, comments? Anybody have a better interpretation? There's got to be one, I know. All right. The next is the bronze laver, the bronze wash basin. Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. And then the next verse says, So when they go into the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, or when they come near to the altar to minister, the bronze altar out in the courtyard, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, look at it, so they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generation. So... This is the last piece of furniture mentioned in Exodus, and he starts with just the instructions for building it. It was a basin of water to be placed out in the courtyard, not inside the tabernacle, and it was to be between the altar, the bronze altar of sacrifice, and the doorway to the tabernacle. And it was only for the priests to wash themselves, their hands and their feet. And it was in constant use all day, every day. The priests were required to wash their hands and their feet every time they passed that wash basin. So it says, if you're going out of the tabernacle to the altar to make sacrifice, you wash your hands, you wash your feet. You're coming back from the altar into the tabernacle, you wash your hands, wash your feet. You think anybody ever forgot? (laughs) Once. Because he said, you don't do it, you die. He says, you don't do it, you, you die. So they washed every time. Every time they came and they went every single time. And it's a constant reminder to them and to us really that service for God, coming into the presence of God, making sacrifice for God, uh, ministering in God's name. It, it couldn't be done flippantly or sloppily. God said you wash every time or you die. And it's a safe su- assumption. I bet, I bet only one guy forgot once and the rest of them were like, I'm never going to forget. <laughs> this washing, I think, I, I mean, it is a, it's a picture of our service to God, our sanctification, our life in Christ. So God has forgiven us once and for all at the altar. The blood has been shed. Atonement has been made. We are covered by that sacrifice. He has forgiven us once and for all. But we still have to face the reality of our sin that still affects our daily life, day in, day out, as we walk in this world. As we serve God, we continually need Him to continue purifying us, sanctifying us, washing us, and make us clean. In 2 Corinthians 7 1 it says since we have these promises beloved let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of god yes could there be a parallel between this and foot washing 
to when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples? Yes, there, there most certainly is. Scott asked if there was a parallel to when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And I think that's probably the most relevant application of this is during the Last Supper when, when he washed their feet. You remember what Peter said to him when he washed their feet, when he was washing their feet? What did Peter say? Yeah. Well, first he said, you never, you're not going to wash me. And then Jesus said, what? If I don't wash you. And then he said, well, then go on and just wash my whole body. And what did Jesus say? You're already clean. You just need me to wash your feet. So, yeah, I think it's a good application. Yes, sir. I had explained to me another reason why back in those days, they walked everywhere. They did like sandals and the dust and dirt. And so when they came to the tabernacle, that like body and spirit, they had to cleanse all the dirt off from the living and in the body and the spirit, pure enough for the tabernacle of God. Well, they were washing daily yeah. for sure. And yes, the... Yeah. the the so ground was sure they, dirt. They didn't have paved roads or... No. <laughs> That's true. That's true. The only reason why... The only reason why I say it points to uh, the cleansing of... The, the cleansing of purity before God is because only the feet and the hands were to be washed. Really, you sacrifice a bull, you're getting blood all over you. I mean, you're getting, you're getting dirt all over you. Your clothes are nasty. You're... But your feet and your hands, you're gonna, your feet are going to be used in my your your feet are going to be used in my house, in my temple, in my service. Your hands are going to be used making sacrifices, ministering in my name. They're going to be clean every time. Every time you go back and forth. Every time you go back and forth. And it's a picture. So we're free. We're free in Christ to come boldly to the throne of grace. We've already seen the sacrifice. We've already talked about the high priest, Jesus, who has made the way for us. But we don't. We still don't come flippantly without examination of self. We can't expect to serve God and be pleasing in our service to God if we're knowingly defying Him or overlooking our own sin or not examining ourselves, not purifying ourselves, like it says in 2 Corinthians. He says we already have the promise. If we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of the defilement of body and spirit. Uh, Proverbs 28.13 says this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And so I think that's what we see at not only the bronze altar, the altar of incense, but also the wash basin that is right between the two. So uh, one of these days we'll get to... We'll get to Revelation. I'll show you how all of the things in the throne room of chapter 4 and chapter 5 of God picture this. The basin is the sea of glass and the, all, all that kind of stuff. It's really, really interesting from beginning to end. The Bible is just one story, one big story of God. The last two things that we're going to look at before we quit is the holy anointing oil and the incense recipes. So get your pen out if you want to make some of this stuff. No, you can't. You're not supposed to make it. You're not supposed to do that. So we're going to breeze through these quickly. Um, it says in verse 22, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices, the liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much. This is 250 and 250 of aromatic cane, uh, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil. You shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. So, special blend of spices. Some have said that I read this week said that this 
this exact amount, if you put all these amounts together, it would weigh like 40 pounds. So it was a bunch of it. Um, and it included ingredients that I'm told were from all over the world, you know, from India, from Arabia, from Lebanon. Um, and he was very specific. It is to be used for God's service only. He says, with it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basis, and the stands. And he says, you shall consecrate them, means make them holy, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve as priests. So they sprinkled it on everything. They sprinkled it on all the furniture, all the stuff. Uh, they sprinkled it on everything, setting all things apart there in the tabernacle for the service of God. And so from the moment the oil anointed it, it was holy to the Lord and only to be used for God's purpose. Now, in the ESV, verse 29 is a little misleading. It says, whatever touches them will become holy. I did look this text up in the Hebrew, and it says, whatever touches them will be holy. So their ESV is taking it as, if you touch it, you will become holy, but I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's saying that anything that touches it, it's an implied command. Anything that touches it must be holy, is what he's saying. So he says, uh, whatever touches them will be holy, is what it says literally. So it must be cleansed, must be consecrated, must be prepared for God's service. No unholy, unclean things were to, um, were to uh, touch the, the consecrated altar and the consecrated basin and the consecrated, you know, altar of incense and all those things. Y'all with me? Questions, comments? And y'all are quiet and looking at me. I'm like sweating down my back. <laughs> Sorry, say that again. I always think of the practical things. How did they do all this, the priests, when they were traveling? Yeah, she asked how did they do all this when they were traveling. So they would only travel when God's presence would go up from and let them know to move. Um, and there were certain, only the Levites did anything with the tabernacle, but there were certain clans, certain families in the Levites that had certain responsibilities. You can find that in Leviticus and Numbers where this certain family, their job was to you know, move the altar of incense. And th this family's job was to move the Ark of the Covenant. And they would wrap the Ark of the Covenant up before any of this took place. So they would never touch it or never come in contact with it. They would just slide their poles in it and they would take off with it. So there were families in, within the Levite tribe that were responsible for the curtains and for all these things. And so all of this was a... I don't know if it was a well-oiled machine, but it was very organized about what would be taken down and who would do it and how they would do it. And basically, when the Lord's presence gave them the sign to go ahead and move, they just started packing all this stuff up in the way that each family, each clan of the Levites knew was their position. And they went and did it. And when the Lord's presence stopped, they settled there. They set it all back up and they started the whole thing over again. So it was a big operation for sure. And all day, every day, sacrifices. All day, every day, washing. All day, every day, ministering, praying before the Lord. Morning and night, incense being burned. All day, every day, never ending. That's really the point of Hebrews. He says the priests, they ministered all day, all time, and their service never ended. But finally, the high priest, Jesus, entered into the Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. And because his work is finished, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
Any other questions? The last thing is the incense we talked about is special. Only a few more verses. Uh, no, this is still the oil, sorry. You shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever com compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So we saw last week with the ordination of the priests and of, of Aaron who had the anointing oil poured uh, over him. Um, we showed the, the symbolism, the picture that that points to is the anointing of, which is called anointing several times in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit, uh, where we are anointed with the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. Um, and it says, last verses, man, I'm like struggling up here. <laughs> the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, that thing and the other thing and that name, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each other be an equal part and make an incense blended as by perfume, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So the incense we've already talked about, pictured the prayers, not to be used for anything else. And the application for us is what? So you Sure. Sure. Well, it smells good, so we're gonna burn it in our house. No, it's holy to the Lord. And it represents our prayers as we saw in the altar of incense. So our prayers are only for the Lord. Only to the Lord. Not to be used for anything else. Our worship, our service, our lives set apart wholly for him because of who our high priest has made us to be. Questions, comments, cries of outrage? We're going to get through Exodus. I'm going to speed up. <laughs> I'm ready to be done with Exodus. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God. Um, thank you that your word is rich. Your word is wonderful. Your word is applicable. God, um, thank you that you... Um, that you that you are with us as we read your word. God, I don't often understand how my body digests food and how it needs this or that, but I know I need it. So God, as we read your word, God, we feed upon your word. We know that you are working through it and in it. And God, I pray that you would show us what you would have us to know. Um, show us Jesus, which is what all of your scripture is about. The high priest, the altars, the wash basin, the veil, God, the tabernacle, it is a picture of our salvation, our life with you, God dwelling with his people. We thank you for that. God, we, we pray that you would show us a picture of Christ and a picture of our life of prayer before you in this altar of incense, a picture of our cleansing of our hands and our feet, washing as we come into your presence, knowing that our sacrifice has been paid in full, but still cleansing us ourselves of the impurities that we gather in this life. Thank you for the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. God, we pray that you, would, um, that you would just enliven our hearts to hear your voice, to love your word, and to um, just follow after you. We thank you, and we do love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.